0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee Podcast, Conversations for Transformation. One of the most critical questions a wife could ask herself is how she compares herself to her husband. I mean, is she better than her husband? Is she worse? How does she compare herself? Is she similar to her husband? How a wife thinks about her role in her marriage and her relationship with her husband will determine the trajectory of that union for good or for bad. Now I am assuming for this discussion that both spouses are maturing, both of them are humble, both of them are willing to communicate on the level that this perspective requires. If one or both of the spouses are pulling against each other, then what I have to say here to you, it will not apply. And so here's the question, How do you compare yourself to your husband? Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me and Life Over Coffee. You can find me in my coffee shop, lifeovercoffee.com. Thousands of free resources. Please take advantage of them. For those of you who are financial partners, thank you so much for underwriting our ministry. You are the people that makes it free for thousands of other people around the world, so thank you so much for underwriting our ministry. If you want to read what I'm about to share with you, then the title of it is One, Just One, One Essential Quality of an effective wife. And you can read all about it. You can watch the video or listen to the podcast. Now, I am asking the question is, how do you compare yourself to your husband? Now, Paul answered the how I compare myself to others question in First 1 Timothy 1.15, when he said he was the most significant sinner that he knew. This is really odd, because Paul's self-assessment flies right in the face of our self-esteem culture, which cannot handle this kind of biblical ego-chastening. The irony is how Paul's view of himself is an honest, hope-filled—yes, I said that—he is the chief of sinners, he is the foremost sinner And that view is honest and it is hope-filled because it leads to personal freedom and relational harmony. It is honest because the biblical record is clear. We are unworthy sinners who put Christ on the cross. It is hope-filled because Christ came to free sinners from their captivity. Humble admissions to the reality of who we are is the only way that we will experience the rescue from who we are. Paul was not discouraged by how he thought about himself. His healthy view became a robust platform upon which he could love God and others most effectively. A platform a wife should construct to help her husband mature into a God-honoring leader. If she understands how what she did to Christ is far worse than anything that anyone has done to her, then she will position herself as a powerful means of effectual grace in her husband's life. You see this idea in Matthew eighteen thirty-three. It says this, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt, because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? the person that the master was talking to had more significant debt than the fellow that he was beating up. But the master released the greater debtor. And so his question, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had compassion on you, is practically relevant for all of us. We can practicalize it by asking, Here's the question, from my perspective, now you will ask from your perspective, and so from your perspective, who is the most prominent sinner that you know? From my perspective, who is the chief of sinners? Well from Paul's perspective, it was him. But if I were having a conversation with Paul, I would say from my perspective, I am the foremost sinner. What about you? Who is the biggest sinner that you know from your perspective? Now, I trust that you would argue Paul and argue me down from our chief sinner's seats, recognizing that you are the chief of all the sinners. If we are convinced our sin against God is more significant than anything ever done to us, then there is no reason for us to be sinful toward others. We can show compassion on others as God has shown mercy to us, which is what the master was telling that great debtor. Even if we cannot transact forgiveness because the offender is not asking for forgiveness... Because we recognize who we were before Christ saved us, the foremost sinner, then we have at least an attitude of forgiveness toward those who have sinned against us while hoping that God will grant repentance to them so that we can eventually transact forgiveness with each other. An attitude of forgiveness spills out of the chief sinner's heart becoming the antidote that keeps the chief sinner from criticalness, bitterness, anger, and other spiteful characteristics from sabotaging the soul. If the great debtor in the story in Matthew 18, if he had understood all the great debt that God, well, that the master had forgiven him of, then when he came across a lesser sinner from his perspective, then he would have had mercy on him as God had mercy on him. We can have this attitude if we have the correct view of ourselves. To withhold a heart of pity and forgiveness from someone who has sinned against us, it denies the gospel that we say that we love. Unkindness transgresses gospel lines. When we become idolatrous, it's when we step outside of, of biblical boundaries because there's something that we want. There is something that we are not getting And we sin in response to that, we become idolatrous in that moment. Idolatry is an attitude of the heart that acts sinfully to satisfy our desires. For example, a child wants a toy. It's not an evil desire. But his parent does not give the child the toy. The child throws a temper tantrum until the parent consents, acquiesces, and gives the child the toy. The attitude of the child's heart, it turned evil because what he wanted was more important than honoring or respecting a fellow image bearer, in this illustration, his parent, the child's behavior too often happens in marriages, and a wife is particularly susceptible, especially if her husband is not learning her, loving her, leading her according to her biblical expectations. Yes, good, biblical, solid, sound expectations. There's a blind side here. And the blind side is that her, her good desire for a biblical marriage is appropriate. It is proper. It is something that she should expect. Good desires, not met, put the wife on dangerous ground because she is just a hair's breadth from falling into the unmet desires trap. Suppose she does not appropriate God's power to her unmet biblical desires. It will only be a matter of time before she becomes critical, bitter, resentful, cynical, harsh, unkind, full of regret. She will need to do significant soul work, which starts with a robust self-assessment of who she is in light of the gospel's narrative. For example... Is she quicker to let herself off the hook than her husband? A common problem is glossing over our sins while lingering long over the sins of others. How do I know that? Well, I'm a professional. I'm a professional sinner, and sadly, I have done this too many times. The temptation is that when a person does not get what they want, they will Elevate that unmet craving over any self-righteous judgments or sinful reactions toward the person who did not come through for them. And so my craving, even especially if it's a good desire, it elevates, it rises above a self-righteous attitude that I will take on toward the person who did not give me this desire that I wanted. Thus, this desire has become an idol in my life. In that case, I'm playing a dangerous sin-comparing game. I am comparing what you did to what I have done to Christ, and that thing that I am not getting, that you're not giving me, becomes greater than this self-assessment that I should have, that Paul had at the end of his life. At the end of his life, when he was as mature as he could possibly be, he was just before going home... And he was giving Timothy these final words, and he said, I am the foremost sinner. When he was talking to the Corinthians, he he was discussing this comparison notion, comparing oneself with someone else. And this is what he said in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He said, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding, meaning that they are not wise, meaning that they are fools when you compare yourself with another person. It sounds a lot like the Pharisee in Luke eighteen eleven. It says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That is not how we are to look at other men, especially our spouses. Suppose we do not see ourselves as similar in kind to others from an Imago Day perspective, meaning that, that every other person in the world Including you. All other people in the world are made in the image of God. Suppose we don't see them as image bearers. And if we don't, we can't elevate ourselves, especially above those who disappoint us. And no matter how disappointing the other person is, no one is better. Than anyone else. There is no biblical warrant to look down on another person from a a self-righteous perch. Self-righteousness is the heart condition that exalts superior attitudes toward others. God does not, God will not bless that kind of attitude to sin against someone in response to their sin. It reveals a person's adverse, albeit authentic, walk with Jesus Christ while creating an awkward dualism with the person they sinned against in the relationship. The dualism is this. It's the sinning victim construct. You have sinned against me. I am a victim. I am sinning against you in response. Now I am a sinner. The sinning or the sinner-victim construct. There are a few discipling situations more challenging than the sinner-victim construct, and it happens too often. For example, a wife shares how her husband sinned against her. There's no justification for it. You do not make light of it. You do not dismiss it as though it's untrue. You believe her. And so the husband sins against her, but then she has a sinful response to him. He sinned against her, making her the victim. She sins against him, making her a sinner. Now you have the sinner-victim construct. Now it is a delicate process as you walk her through what is wrong with the marriage. And there's multiple parts here. Part of the problem is her culpability, her guilt in the deterioration of the marriage because again it's never right for her to elevate herself in a self-righteous way and sin against another person which is exactly what's happening when you sin against another person you are self-righteously sinning against them and that is a problem even if you are responding to their sin against you now you cannot move too fast with this knowledge Because she will misunderstand you. She will perceive you as being harsh with your accusation that that she is sinning against him. She will assume that you don't even recognize what her husband did to her. You have to move carefully here. She will not be able to handle the truth. And so you want to pace yourself. And so you begin carefully understanding her suffering understanding what was done to her listening to gain full context of where she's at looking through this situation with her eyes and listening with her ears as you are sympathetically understanding the hurt and the fears that she has experienced because it is legit her pain is real her story is dark and more than likely she is correct Her husband has been mean. Her husband has been insensitive toward her. And so you have to give her appropriate time and space to weep over and to work through the disappointment that has characterized their marriage from her perspective. Take as much time as necessary. You do not want to prematurely introduce more tension into this narrative by addressing her guilt until you have competently, compassionately, thoroughly communicated your care for her. You want to slowly bring her to the place where she can hear the whole truth about what is wrong with their covenant. Your ultimate goal is to position her heart to receive God's help, not just fix her husband. Fixing her husband is part of the problem, and it is essential. And you're praying. You're begging God to grant repentance to that man because he has sinned against her. But that is not the entire situation here. And so there's a lot of things that she needs to know. She needs to know the Lord is not oblivious to what is happening in her marriage. She needs to know God is for her and he has a better plan for their marriage. She needs to know there is no problem where God's grace is inadequate to repair their marriage. She needs to know the Lord can use the sin in their marriage to redeem their marriage. And so you are moving slow. These good things They can happen if she grieves over the disorderedness in his soul and their marriage while taking her soul to task by fixing what she can fix about herself. And so you're slowly introducing a comprehensive understanding of the problem, not just his initiation, not just because he was the cause, which he was, but you want her to grieve But you don't want her to fall into despair. You want her to correct unbiblical thinking, but not crush her spirit. Now the most common question that someone would ask about this process that I'm laying out, this duality process of addressing the initiator and his sin, but also having a sober self-assessment that our sin is far greater in the eyes of God, which creates a humbling effect, leveling us at the at the foot of the cross, so that we are uh, addressing the person who sinned against us out of a heart attitude that's broken because of recognition of our own sin before God. And thus someone will ask, how in the world do you do this? Well, the first step is to ensure she is not complicating the problem through personal sinfulness. I'm telling you, it happens so often. And yeah, I I am a professional, I'm a professional sinner. I've done it many times myself, but I've seen it a thousand times in counseling. And so slowly you're you're implementing a comprehensive view of this entire narrative that's going on in the marriage. And as you do this, you have to discern God's desires to guide you while trusting him to work through you to restore her as the precursor to working on what's wrong with him. I mean, if he initiated the problems and he's a primary cause agent in the problem, but she has complicated it by piling on, you want to pull her off the pile, resolve the problem with her so you can focus on the very thing that she wants you to address, but you can't address him if she keeps sabotaging the situation by her own sinful attitude. If she is going to be a gentle restorer, what Paul was saying in Galatians 6, 1, if any person is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And if she is going to be a gentle restorer of her husband, then she must keep watch over her soul, ensuring that the evil one has not entrapped her. Don't assume that she's ready to be part of God's restoration team of her husband when sin is harboring and lingering in her heart. It would help if you also let her know that that they will not likely simultaneously repent during this season. That rarely happens when two people are in a dust stop, and you're calling her to repentance, and you're calling him to repentance. She's the victim sinner, and... And ironically, he now becomes the victim sinner, too, because she's sinning against him. And the expectation of both of them to repent at the same time and snap out of it, come to their senses and be humble before God and before each other at the same time. No, that, that probably will not happen. Somebody will have to make the first move. And it doesn't matter which one it is, but somebody needs to move forward that a redemptive righteous path. You see, this is messy, and sin is messy. In a marriage, and anyone, anywhere else, it wants to plop down into our lives. Their marriage is not a happily ever after movie. It's real life. Screenwriters do not factor in how the doctrine of sin practically works out in our lives. They're making movies. But in real life, every story does not end according to how you want it to end. We are not in control of the narrative. Sin is messy, and there will be times when things do not end with everyone smiling and hugging and heading over the horizon as the sun fades to black. Families do divide. Marriages do fail. Christ experienced crucifixion. Counseling does not assure preferred outcomes. The husband may never become what the wife wants. This potential is where the wife of an unchanging man needs gospel clarity. The gospel can give her what she needs to find restoration, and it can give her all she needs to live in an unreconciled situation with her husband. And so there are two options for her. If her husband does not repent, if this isn't an American-made movie, she can forgive him attitudinally in her heart, in her mind. If her husband does repent, well, she can forgive him transactionally where he's asking and she is giving. Attitudinal forgiveness is about her heart's attitude toward him, perchance he does not change. She doesn't want his unrepentant sin managing her or anyone else's. If someone sins against you... And they're not asking, they're not confessing that and asking you to forgive them and seeking to reconcile the relationship, then that sin will continue to spin and linger out there forever until they come and confess and ask. Well, in the meantime, you don't want it managing you, which is why you're asking God to give you an attitude of forgiveness toward them so that you can be free. The best she can do is to free herself from his sin. And she can be free even if he never, ever chooses to be free. The challenge in an unchanging marriage is whether the victim will do the work to guard their heart against being a sinful, self-righteous person. God doesn't grade on a curve. Nobody receives special favor from God as though one person is better than someone else. We all are rotten to the core, and we all require the Lord's favor. There are only two grades of people. The Father gives us an F-, and the Father gives His Son an A+. plus. I was a depraved human that God regenerated by His grace. My good fortune did not come because I turned over a new leaf, because I became a good person. My redemption, being born again, and my ongoing restoration after coming into the body of Christ, is an undeserved gift from God. I have no right to think that my effort makes me better than anyone. If my works are good, it is because God works through me. God is good. Paul could not be more explicit. None is righteous. No, not one. None understand. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That's Romans 3 verses 10, 11, and 12. We cannot grade each other on a curve to feel better about ourselves while belittling others. We are bad to the bone. We are simultaneously sinners and victims. And though some sins are consequentially worse than others, and I do want to make that point, because what I am talking about with this equality and co-equal sinners, I'm not talking about the consequences. I mean, obviously, some people have done more heinous things than you have. If you have followed my story at all, you know that to be true about me. I had two brothers who were murdered. I've never done that. And so if we're talking about consequences, that's obvious, obviously far worse than anything that I have done. And so you can make that case, but that's not the argument that I'm presenting here. And so on the other hand, even though those two murderers have done worse than I have, I am no different from them from an ontological perspective, a state-of-being perspective. Apart from God's grace, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one that does good. And so we are bad to the bone. And so I'm not making a consequential argument here. I am saying that we must recognize that any sin is significant enough to put Christ on the cross. And this kind of gospel-informed thinking releases us from being controlled by the sins of other people, even if they have murdered people who are dear to you, especially disappointing people who never change. If you understand and practically apply these truths, then you will be positioned in the best possible place to help your spouse overcome the things that disrupt your marriage. I am not saying that your spouse will ever change. But you can rise above the fray by living a gospel-centered life that recognizes that God made both of you in the imago Dei. Both of you are made in the image of God. It's never right to sin in response to sin. You can forgive in your heart minimally regardless of what the other person does. And with a spirit of humility, then you're in the best place to courageously and compassionately confront, correct, care for, compel your spouse to change their ways. And if they do not choose to the change, then you will have no regret, because you've done all that depends on you, to be the most effective spouse that you can be. I've titled this, One Essential Quality of an Effective Wife. Obviously, it applies to both spouses. It applies to every one of us, whether we're married or not. You can read, watch, or listen to this at lifeovercoffee.com. Please take advantage of it. We have a search feature, and if you just type, Effective Spouse or Essential Quality, In the search box it'll come up uh, for you before i wrap up i do want to ask you a handful of questions i think i have five of them for you number one do you pity your spouse as a fallen fellow sinner needing god's empowering favor if you do not pity your spouse or if you do not pity that disappointing person uh, in your life then that is where you have to start in your closet asking god uh, to give you pity for a fellow image bearer who may have consequentially sinned to the 10th power more than you, worse than you. But around the cross, there is none righteous, no, not one. There are no gradations of people, ontologically speaking. Do you pity your spouse as a fellow fallen sinner needing God's empowering favor? If you don't, why not? What will it take for you to get to that place? Number two, Though the consequences for sin can differ significantly, why is it essential to see all humans as equal sinners standing at the foot of the cross? Would you take some time to reflect upon that? Answer it. Maybe have a discussion. This would be a wonderful uh, small group of friends discussion. Have two or three couples over, married couples, and, and, and go through this article, podcast, the video and then just wrestle through these questions at the discussion time. I think it could be profound. It could be a huge leadership opportunity uh, for the group in that room, if they're willing. As I said at the onset, that if both people aren't pulling in the same direction, you can imagine this will not go well. And so it has to be two people who are, who are humble enough, not perfect enough, but humble enough to want to move in the same direction and, and listen to this and make appropriate applications. If not, then it can go into some bad places. Number three, why would Paul say he was the foremost sinner at the end of his life, knowing others have committed more numerous and grievous sins than him? Excellent reflective question. Number four, why are good desires we don't get from our spouses so deceptive? Why do they trip us up so easily, even tempting us to sin in response to not getting that thing from our spouses? Now, maybe you have different answers to that question. I know for me, one of the answers to that question is because it's a good desire. It's not like I want something evil from my spouse. I want something good. But sometimes when we want good things, we have good expectations. We can really get tripped up at that point. But maybe you have a different answer to the question, and that would be great. Why are good desires we don't get from our spouses so deceptive, even tempting us to sin in response to not getting that thing from our spouses? And then finally, number five How are you responding to your unchanging spouse if your spouse is unchanging? Do you need to treat him differently when he disappoints you? And if so, what specific and practical ways will you change? One essential quality of an effective wife. Flip it around if you have to. One essential quality of an effective husband. But I'm writing specifically two wives, hoping that they will recognize that they may be blind to their sinfulness toward their husbands, elevating themselves as though they are better than their husbands, which is why I led at the beginning with the comparison question, how do you compare yourself uh, with your husband? Are you better? Are you worse? Are you similar? I said, how you think about your role in your marriage and relationship with your husband? will determine the tra- trajectory of that union for good or bad. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.